You've heard the saying, the proof is in the pudding. The proof is in the pudding. It comes from an older proverb in the English language. The proof of the pudding is in the eating. And I think I'm a bigger fan of that one. The proof of the pudding is in its eating. I'm going to tell you a story. Lindsay is going to contradict it. My version is the right version. Uh, it's December 1998. Lindsay has caught my eye on the campus of the Master's College. We have gone on our first date, okay, December 1998. And, um, and I have heard tellings from her of her family's pound cake recipe, okay? Some of you know about this pound cake. Uh, it'll change your life. Just let me finish this story, and I'll tell you how. Uh, the proof of the pudding is in its eating. Okay, you hear about the pound cake, whatever. I heard about the pound cake. I don't know what a pound cake is. I'm from California. I, it just wasn't in my family culture, okay? I have no, no concept of it. I kid you not, Lindsay's mom had mailed her a pound cake from Atlanta, Georgia to Los Angeles, California. So she has, in, her, in the mail, delivered this pound cake. And I don't know if you'd use the term bewitched or something, but she, she fed me that, a, a piece of that cake December 1998. And the next thing I knew, we were married. Okay? So that's, I, that's all I'm saying. I mean, I don't remember anything that happened. No. I'm going to get in so much trouble for telling that story. Anyway, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Listen, the pound cake is amazing. And I literally can remember where I was when I ate that first piece of pound cake. And if you've ever had Lindsay's pound cake, you know why. It's amazing, okay? The family recipe works. You see, claims to goodness aren't enough. A claim has to be backed up by reality, by experience in the real world. You can't just say something is good or excellent or praiseworthy. It has to be proven to be good or excellent or praiseworthy. In this part of the Gospel of Matthew, we have this dramatic moment where Jesus is healing. He's delivering people from demonic oppression. And the, the religious leaders, the people who are supposed to be good in the community, leading the community in worship, they have looked at Jesus. And remember, just last week, we read that they said, you know what, he's actually doing all this by the power of Satan. And so Jesus takes this moment to expose the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. They claim to be good, but their words betrayed the reality. The proof of the pudding is in the eating. Now this passage in Matthew 12, starting in verse 33, it's still right in that context of what happened last week. And as we walk through it, we find in this passage both a warning, a warning to be careful and to consider our own fruit, as we'll see in a moment, but then also we find great encouragement in this passage. There is comfort here for us. As Jesus warns us about the nature of hypocrisy, he also offers us a better way. He teaches us here about the connection between what we believe, our faith, and how we live, our behavior. So let's take a look here, starting in verse 33. We'll unpack Jesus' teaching here and see what we have to learn from it. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 33, and this is all contextually flowing right out of last week where he talked about how they accused him of being, uh, being satanic, right? In verse 33, Jesus goes on and says, Either make the tree good and its fruit will be good, or make the tree bad and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. Okay, this is a basic agricultural metaphor here, right? 
And the CSB has make the tree good. There are some translations that say consider whether the tree is good. And the idea is this. If you take good care of a tree and you give it the water it needs, you give it the nutrients it needs, it's getting the sunlight that it needs, right? if you're doing your job as the farmer, right, then yeah, that tree will be healthy. And a healthy tree produces good fruit. If you don't take care of the tree, if you don't give the tree water, if you don't you know, give it you know, the nutrients that it needs, put it in a bad spot, whatever, then that tree is not going to be a good tree. It's going to be a bad tree, and it will produce bad fruit. How do you know which is which? Well, Jesus says here, for a tree is known by its fruit. Sometimes you can't always tell the difference between a good tree and a bad tree. You have to test the fruit. You have to take a bite of this apple and that apple and discern, oh yeah, this apple tree is healthy, this one is not. The fruit tells the story. Jesus here basically establishes this metaphor as a means by which he is going to criticize what the religious leaders of the community are doing to him. Again, they're claiming to be good, but a tree is known by its fruit. The reality here, and what Jesus is trying to explain, is that uh, real faith produces real change. Real faith results in real change. One commentator said it this way, Our true nature is revealed by our words and deeds. They were claiming to be good, and they called Jesus satanic. He says, that does not mesh. Those two statements don't go together. Their fruit was wicked, evil, right? It betrayed their unbelief. Again, what R.T. France said, our true nature is revealed by our words and deeds. Now, Jesus lays this principle out, and we're going to talk about it. He's going to, he's going to flesh it out for us. But let's just start with this principle, that real faith results in real change. We have to ask the question this morning, do my words and deeds support my claim to faith? Now, this is a big question. Do my words and deeds support my claim to faith? Jesus is not teaching that Christians are perfect automatically. But he is saying that, that in the, the life of faith, the, the person who is now good, who has turned to the Lord, right? In that person's life, there won't be an obvious inconsistency between their words and their deeds and their claim to faith. In general, there's going to be agreement. The question is, how do we respond to Jesus, right? So a tree is known by its fruit. So automatically, right, Jesus introduces this principle that, listen, real faith results in real change. And if you don't speak in a way that honors Christ, if you don't live in a way that honors Christ, and yet you claim to be a follower of Jesus, you claim to be, in that sense, good, and that your, your words tell a different story and your behavior tells a different story, Jesus says, we got a problem here. This is not going to work. A tree is known by its fruit. Real faith results in real change. He has introduced already some areas in life where I think we're easily tempted to hypocrisy, back in the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm just going to review a couple of those just as a way to help us this morning, you know, brainstorm areas of potential inconsistency in our lives. One example he gives in the Sermon on the Mount is tolerating bitterness and hatred, where religious leaders of the day had claimed to be, you know, good, moral, upstanding, you know, faith examples, and yet here they were tolerating bitterness and hatred in their hearts towards others. Jesus says that's not going to work. Or only giving or praying or serving for show when people notice 
but not actually caring about the work of the Lord, not actually caring about prayer, seeking the Lord in prayer, or serving others when no one's watching. Jesus talks about the temptation constantly to be a worshiper of money rather than of God. It's a potential area of inconsistency. Or he also references in the Sermon on the Mount our attitude and actions towards marriage and sexual purity. He says, listen, if you're going to belong to my kingdom, if you're going to follow me, then there is a particular way of living here when we think about marriage and sexuality. I just bring those up as, as areas in our life where we speak and act where we can say, well, a tree is known by its fruit. Again, the issue is not perfection, but the issue is, is our life consistent with this claim to faith? Real faith results in real change. What Jesus is warning us about is a claim to faith where there is no life change or, or the clear example of the life says, I don't follow Jesus. I don't love him or care for him. And so there's the warning. Real life results in real change. You could be in this situation, especially if you're raised in a Christian family, and yet you've never trusted in Christ yourself. It's very possible. You're raised in a Christian family, expose the gospel a lot, but you just do your own thing. And, you know, you go to church, you know, every now and then to satisfy your mom or your grandma or whoever, but the fact is that you don't believe. And you might claim, if you were on a survey and said, are you a Christian? You might say yes, but your words and deeds say otherwise. What's especially concerning to Jesus is, again, this clear inconsistency between what the Pharisees were doing with their words and how they responded to him and what genuine faith really does to us, how it actually changes us. Now, not all Pharisees had this level of hypocrisy, but maybe it's fair to say, in this context, most did. And so Jesus comes at them. Okay, so he establishes the principle, for a tree is known by its fruit, and Jesus says, let's look at the fruit. Watch verse 34, okay? Verse 34, Jesus declares, brood of vipers, how can you speak good things when you are evil? For the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. Pause verse 34 there, brood of vipers. If your version of Jesus is the precious moments Jesus, you familiar with precious moments? You know, the precious moments Jesus? Um, I, I'm really sorry about that, but, but the scriptural Jesus doesn't have kind words for hypocrisy right? Jesus comes at these Pharisees, again, primarily, I think, because of their position of spiritual influence, and he says, you brood of vipers, okay, a nest of poisonous snakes. You know how much I love snakes, and that is scripturally warranted in this <laughs> context. No, they're not always bad, but in this case, it's a bad example, right? So why? Because vipers are poisonous snakes. He's saying the Pharisees, the religious leaders that are denouncing him to their followers, you are poison. You're poisoning the community against the Messiah. You're poisoning the community against me. He goes on, verse 34, brood of vipers, how can you speak good things when you are evil? For the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. Don't miss the context. What have they just said? They just said he does this by the power of Beelzebul. He does this by the power of Satan. Jesus says, well, there you go. There you go. That's the overflow of their heart. And what is in their heart is not good faith in the Lord. That what is in their heart is wicked rejection of the Messiah. And there, there it was. They just they said it. Watch verse 35. He goes on. Building on this principle then. 
about from the, the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. He says in verse 35, A good person produces good things from his storeroom of good, and an evil person produces evil things from his storeroom of evil. So let's just pause right here. Okay, verse 35. So this is not saying, well, you're either born good or you're born evil. And if you're born good, then, you know, good things come out of you. If you're born evil, then evil things come out. No, he's talking about, it's all about how you respond to me. If you've responded to me in faith, right, then that is good. And out of the warehouse in your heart, good will come. He says, if you have rejected me, that, that means that your warehouse is filled with evil. And so out of that warehouse is going to come evil. And it's going to express itself verbally in how we speak. And that's the primary focus here. Of course, it also will be expected in, expe- expressed in how we live. But here he focuses on, on our words. The principle here is that we all have a storehouse or a warehouse inside of us. And, well, if it's, if it's a st- warehouse that's filled by faith in Christ, then we'll speak consistent with that. And if it's rejection, then we'll speak consistent with that. What does it look like to have good in the storeroom of your heart and to have it overflow? Well, we can look to the Scriptures. And we can find that God calls us to use our speech as an encouragement to others. In Ephesians 4, 29, we're called to give speech that isn't rotten speech that tears others down, but rather to give speech that builds others up and gives grace to those who hear. In the book of Colossians, a speech that's seasoned with salt, appropriate for the season, for the setting, right? That's what believers are called to. That's what love for Christ results in. Certainly, at a bare minimum, that warehouse is going to produce speech that, that affirms Jesus is the Messiah and what he teaches and does is good, right? Whatever he teaches and does is good. But if the, if the warehouse is wicked, then what are we going to find? We're going to find speech that is self-focused and that is satanic. Where even though we might claim to be a believer, that in actuality we reject Jesus. That rejection of Christ in the practical matters of our life is poison. It's poison. In fact, any rejection of Jesus is poison. And so Jesus develops this this metaphor with the tree is known by its fruit. Then he, he switches to the warehouse image. And he says, you've got a warehouse, but what's in it? I could maybe steal from Capital One here. What's in your warehouse? You know? <laughs> what's in our warehouse? Look, your warehouse is where you put stuff that's valuable, right? Your storehouse. You keep the stuff that's important. So what do you treasure? What, what do you value? What do you pursue? Okay, so what do we treasure? What do we value? What do we pursue? I can give you another word. What do we worship? That's what worship means, to value something, right? So the the question is, what do we value? If you want to know what you value, what you pursue, right? What you are, 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 are chasing after and treasuring, what you are worshiping, you can look at your speech, Your speech is a reliable guide to what's in your heart. Boy, that is a scary reality, isn't it? Your speech is a reliable guide to what you worship. So, maybe in the interest of spiritual health, just taking Jesus' teaching here at face value, you can say, okay, 
I need to ask the question, what does my speech say about what I value? You can think about it in two kind of categories. First, you can think about, you know, how does, how does what I value impact what we talk about? What do I talk about? What is the, the topic, right, that I like to speak about the most? Or what are the topics that I speak about the most? So you got to watch out for a couple things here, right? Um, you got to watch out for the gossip train, where you love to talk about the latest news about whoever and whatever and so ever and, and whatever, uh, you know, Harry and Meghan are up to next, okay? That's a bad example, but whatever, you know, like, like we want to ride the gossip train. Or you, you love to talk about the big game, and the big game, and how the Lions are finally going to win the Super Bowl, and it's going to change the world forever. And it's another sign of the end of the times, actually, if the Lions win in the Super Bowl, right? It's so like, you know, you talk about, you want to talk about the big game. You talk about whatever's going on with the big game and all of that. Okay? But do you ever talk about Jesus Christ? Do you talk about him? You talk about him as a, as a family, husband and wife. What is the Lord doing in this situation? What has he called me to? Where am I struggling? Where has he blessed me? You talk about him parents to children, grandparents to grandchildren. Jesus is not saying we only ever talk about spiritual things. He's saying what we value is what we will talk about. That's a fair question. I fear that in our distraction-laden culture, where we have so many distractions all the time, we can talk meaningfully about anything. And we do. And yet so often we're not talking about the things that matter most. Maybe there's an opportunity here for people of faith to just have a little courage in our conversation. To be willing to talk about the one who's rescued us from eternal judgment and who's gifted to us forgiveness and grace that we were just singing about is mercy. The one who has opened up the treasure chest of his merits for our benefit. Probably we should talk about him, right? So we'll, we'll see what we treasure in what we talk about, but we'll also see what we treasure in how we talk. This is about the purpose and manner of our speech. So again, Jesus is not saying you never talk about anything other than him. Obviously, that's not the point. But the fact is that real faith results in real change. And the fact is you will know a tree by its fruit. And the fact is out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so what Jesus is saying is you can see by what you talk about and by how you talk what you value. And so in Ephesians 4, 29, we, we get this caution about, listen, if you're a believer in Jesus, we, we don't speak in foul, rotten ways, okay? Our speech is not intended to tear down or to be intentionally abrasive to others. No, instead, we speak in purposefully ministerial ways, that we want to bless others with our speech, and we want to lift others up, right? That we want to, we want to give grace to those who hear whatever we're saying. And so we could be talking about the big game. We can be talking about the weather. We can be talking about whatever's going on at work or at school. And we can do that in a way that dishonors Christ, that shows that all we care about is ourselves. Or we can do that in a way that honors Christ and exalts him, just in, by the manner that we're speaking, the, the vocabulary that we, we use, the tone that we use. And maybe that we've stopped and thought, you know what, how can I encourage this person that I'm talking to? Any rejection of Jesus is poison, and Jesus says you've got to be careful about your storehouse. 
We talked last week about there's loud rejection of Jesus, that you know, fish-shaking defiance of God, but then there's also quiet rejection of Jesus. It's all poison, though. It's all poison. Because there was one Pharisee who said it out loud, yeah, that this guy is doing all this work by, by the power of Satan, but then there were a bunch of others who, who quietly just nodded their heads in agreement when he said it. And so you just got to be careful about this poison, and it is poison, make no mistake. Right? That rejection of Jesus in any form, it is poison and it'll get you. Now, we've entered into what I would call scary territory because now we're going, okay, hold on, what is in my warehouse? And we know that we're not perfect and so there's areas of struggle where we don't value what we should, right? So, oh, we're getting, okay, I'm getting a little nervous here, right? Real faith results in real change. Have I been changed? But then Jesus starts to talk about the day of judgment. Watch verse 36, because now we, we transition to, I think, even a greater level of urgency and intensity. He's established this principle. The tree is known by its fruit. He's talked about the storeroom of good or evil. Verse 36, then he says, I tell you that on the day of judgment, people will have to account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Okay, so just pause right there. In verse 36, when he says... People will have to account for every careless word they speak. That word careless has a couple of nuances in meaning. I think maybe something a little closer to the sense here would be worthless. Your every worthless word that they speak will be, you'll have to give an account for. Jesus is not saying, you know, if you haven't stopped and soberly thought about every sentence you ever speak, you're going to hell. That's not what he's saying. But he is saying, if you speak in ways that are worthless then that will be exposed on the day of judgment. The reality of your spiritual condition will be seen by your fruit, by what you say. And he says, and if that's the way you speak, if you speak in worthless ways, then you're facing judgment and your own words will condemn you. Now, what's an example of a worthless word? Well, how about attributing the work of the Messiah to Satan? Are you with me? So Jesus is talking about, he's talking about that kind of worthless word. Words that are affirming sin, words that are affirming evil, words that are rejecting him, right? He's not talking about the, the, the everyday mistakes that we often struggle with, which are still important and need to be dealt with. But here he's saying, listen, real faith results in real change. And on the day of judgment, if you were wearing the clothes of a Pharisee and everyone viewed you as a spiritual leader, and yet in your fruit you proved to be evil rather than good, you will be judged, that's what verse 37 says. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Now let's just be careful here. Jesus is not teaching works salvation, that you will be saved and forgiven because you speak in certain ways. He is saying that only real faith rescues on the day of judgment, and real faith results in real change. So the question is, how do I know if I have real faith? Well, because of my fruit. There is evidence in my life. Only real faith rescues on the day of judgment. We are still saved by faith. It's just that on the day of judgment, as everything is exposed, what's exposed in our life is not perfection, but it is not flagrant hypocrisy, where we have claimed to be good, and yet the, the evidence proves otherwise. On the day of judgment, as our 
our imperfections and inadequacies are exposed, what's also exposed is that the Spirit of God has changed us. And so we sp we've spoken differently. We've acted in ways that honor and glorify God, not with perfection, but as real evidence that God has done something to us. And at the end of the day, we are forgiven, not because of those works, but the fact is our forgiveness has produced those works and transformed us. They're just evidence, evidence that God has done this work. Why are we forgiven and acquitted on that day of judgment? It's because of the work of the Son of God on our behalf. We have to understand the cause and effect here. What causes transformed speech that will result in acquittal on the day of judgment? Well, it's faith. It's not effort. It's faith. Only real faith rescues on the day of judgment. Now, as Jesus says this, once again, remember the context. He is coming at that brood of vipers, and he's coming at them directly. Because he wants the people to know and understand that these guys are not modeling for you what is genuine real faith. But as he does so, right, we, we can't help but get a little nervous. Because here we are, we're gathered together, and we love the Lord. But man, we know that we don't always speak the way we should. We know that our, our warehouses aren't filled all the time with, with what is good and right. And so our, our inadequacies are exposed at that moment. So then we have to ask, I think, the next question, which is about the assurance of salvation. Well, how do I know if I'm really saved then? Especially if I've been struggling. Because if you're like me in your Christian life, you do hit seasons or patches where you are particularly struggling with a, a temptation or a sin or an area of discouragement. And so you're looking at that, you're going, well, wait a minute. You know a tree by its fruit. What about me? What about my fruit? So let's talk for a moment about the assurance of our salvation. What Jesus is saying here is real faith results in real change. That doesn't change the fact of Romans 8.1. That there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All those who've trusted in Christ will show evidence of that faith. It will change your life. You can't stop the Spirit of God in that. It will happen. So at the very outset, when we think about assurance, we look to Christ and His work on the cross. If, if you're looking for confidence in being forgiven and you're looking to yourself primarily, you're always going to be disappointed. Because if you're honest, you can always find areas where you failed. And if you haven't found areas where you failed, just ask your family. They'll tell you. Okay? So, like, they know. Like, it's, it's obvious, right? So, that's the reality, right? We, we recognize, okay, if I look to myself, I'm, I'm going to be disappointed. So, we look to Christ first and foremost. Your successes and failures in sanctification do not change his death and resurrection. And if you have trusted in Christ, you are forgiven of your sins. That truth isn't going anywhere, right? So we find assurance by looking to the cross. But we also find assurance as we look to the cross by also seeing how it's affected us. If there is, I think the primary idea in this passage, if there is no struggle in your life, if the inconsistencies don't bother you, if the hypocrisy doesn't bother you, if there's no struggle against sin and temptation, then that is a huge red flag and you should not be assured. Because you could say, oh, I, I've trusted in Christ, but my life screams, no, I haven't. You've got a problem. That's what this passage is about. If you say, I've trusted in Christ, but Jesus works by Satan, or I fear God, but the Messiah works by Satan, 
no, you're not okay. No assurance is offered there, right? You know a tree by its fruit. But we also, as we look to our lives, we will see that fruit of the Spirit. You know, we read it in our time of singing together, but Galatians 5 is helpful to us because it says, listen, the Spirit leads us in particular ways. And although short of perfection, we do see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We do see evidences that God has done something to me, right? There's, there is a fruit in my life. So what we're, we're looking for for assurance is a lack of flagrant hypocrisy and rejection of Christ. Another, another uh, marker of that flagrant hypocrisy is uh, a stubborn refusal to repent and confess sin. So like if you're like, oh yeah, I fear God, but you never confess or repent sin for decades. I don't know what to tell you. I don't know if you should be assured because the person who fears God is sensitive to the Spirit of God leading him in the conviction of sin and confessing sin and failure and turning back to the Lord daily. I mean, this is a, a daily issue where we seek the Lord. Not that every day we have massive failures, but every day we know we need God. We need a Savior, a rescuer. And the person who's walking around going, well, other people need him, but I don't really need him that much, right? That's, again, another red flag that says I shouldn't be assured because there's no evidence that I've actually trusted in Christ. There's no sign of that in my life. If we're, if we're struggling for assurance, we look first to the cross, and then we look for evidence that God has done something to us. Not perfection, but we look for signs. We look for some of that fruit. And maybe even if we have a very tender conscience, we might only see our failures. That's where we might have a trusted brother or sister or someone like our spouse who puts their arm around us and says, you know what? I see evidence in you. I see evidence in you that God has done a work in your life. I see fruit consistent with the Spirit's presence. I see evidence that, yes, you have trusted in Christ. And so sometimes when we're discouraged, we need someone to come alongside us and just put their arm around us and talk honestly with us. And listen, brothers and sisters, if you know someone who claims faith and their life is screaming they have no faith, love them well by asking them if they are actually a Christian. Not as a scare tactic, not to, not to be a fear monger, but just to say, I love you enough to say, you claim this faith, but I don't see reason to believe that you are a believer. This is not some type of hyper-spiritual Gestapo, like, you know, going through, combing through people's lives, looking for the little faults and failures. No, out of love and grace, this is just care to say, I'm, not, I'm just not seeing it. I'm just not seeing it. If you're here this morning and you're concerned as to whether or not you are a believer, that's a good sign, right? That's a good sign. It's a good starting point of softness to the Lord where you're going, okay, if it doesn't bother you and you're like, forget it, I don't even care, well, that's a red flag, right? More reason to be concerned. But Pastor Ryan, if I'm seeking assurance and I look at my fruit in my life, and yes, I see some evidence that God has been at work and I have trusted in Christ, but then I also see these areas of failure. Now what do I do? Now what do I do? Well, we read the rest of Matthew and what happens? Jesus goes to the cross for those failures. He died on the cross so that you and I could be forgiven for our failures, for our sins. And he rose from the dead 
so that as we trust in him, we're forgiven. And so, yes, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And when I come across my own failures, when I find something wicked in my storehouse, when my fruit isn't looking that great, right? And, and so it's not, it's not, you know, perfect fruit. And I see something I need to adjust. And I recognize my sin. What do I do? I confess it to the Lord. I say, yes, Lord, I failed. And if you're here this morning and you're human, you failed. But what we find in the gospel is grace and mercy. We find forgiveness. So we can say, I sinned. I failed when I said this, when I did this, when I didn't do this. I failed. And Lord Jesus, I am looking to you for forgiveness. And this is, what, this is, this is the crazy thing about the gospel. When we do that, so often we think, here's Jesus, like this. Again? Really? You blew it again? What's your excuse this time? You're on a diet? Not the problem? Didn't sleep enough? Like, we feel like Jesus is like, you know, sitting there ready to just come down on us. You know what Jesus is, is his posture is towards us? He says, that's exactly why I came for you. That's exactly why I walked that road for you. That's exactly why I hung there for you. It's terribly tragic that in so many churches, you find people who say, I'm all about Jesus, and yet they never confess their need for a Savior. They come to church and they pretend that they've got it all together. When everything we sing and everything we're reading says none of us have it all together, right? We pretend that, oh, I, I don't need help, right? When the gospel screams, we all need help. So when we fail in the gospel, we find safety to say, I've blown it. So you can say to your spouse, right? Confess it to the Lord, you confess it to your spouse. You can say it to your kids, kids to your parents. You can say, I've, I've confessed it to the Lord, now I confess it to you, I failed, I messed up. I shouldn't have said that, I shouldn't have done, I should have done, whatever, right? And what that is, that is God-honoring response to sin, right? When we read a passage like this, if we read it incorrectly, it can lead to panic and to fear, but Jesus says, hypocrisy is, a, is such a, a poison. We've got to confront it head on. We've got to call it what it is. But even as he does so, even, even as he says, we have to acknowledge that a tree will be known by its fruit. Even as he says, out of the warehouse you'll speak. We also have to recognize that by his very mission, he is changing us. Right? He is working this miracle in our lives. Only real faith rescues on the day of judgment. And guess what? Real faith results in real change. My friend Martin Luther, thinking about this exact topic, he said it this way. You think about, well, what makes me good? Right? I think that's a fair question. What makes a tree good? What makes the sinner a saint? He says, a man becomes good through the regeneration of the spirit. Listen, what you got to hear out of a passage like this is not, well, you better try hard. Just, you know, you're in trouble. What you hear is when God works a miracle, there will be evidence. And yes, we struggle. But the transformation that we find in our lives is due to his gracious work. God doesn't look at us and say, well, you checked enough boxes. I guess I'll rescue you. He says, I love you. I'll rescue you. Now watch how that, what that does to you. Watch how it changes how you speak and how you live. Because real faith results in real change.
We're going to pray here and, and conclude our time in the Word. But as I do so, I just want to acknowledge that this is a particularly difficult topic for so many of us. And if assurance of salvation is something that you struggle with, uh, we would love to minister to you and to talk with you about your spiritual state. And the gospel is so clear, we want to be confident in our state as being forgiven because of faith in Jesus. We want to we help each other in that. Not because we're, we're great and we've got it all figured out, but because we worship a great Savior. So let's pray together and we'll ask for his help. Lord, once again, we pause this morning and we thank you for your word. Even in a, a warning passage like this, Lord, where you remind us that real faith results in real change. And Lord, we see the hypocrisy of the Pharisees in this moment as they attribute your miracles to Satan, and that is scary. It's scary to us, Lord. And yet, at the same time, Lord, we also see that there's comfort in the fact that by your Spirit, you have changed us. And although we are not yet perfect, we see evidence, Lord, in our lives, in how we speak, what we speak about, Lord, how we live. And Lord, we ask for your help this morning to live in light of the gospel. Lord, I pray especially for those who may be here who have not yet trusted in you. Lord, I pray that you would convict them of their sin and show them your goodness this morning in your provision. Lord, I pray for those this morning who may be here who are struggling with assurance. Lord, they're struggling to know whether or not they are saved. I pray that you would remind them that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And those who are in Christ Jesus have truly been changed. And so there will be some signs, some evidence in their lives. Lord, help us as we seek to comfort one another and point one another back to you. Lord, we know that this is a delicate area in our sanctification, this ebb and flow of confessing sin and being confident in the gospel. But we pray that you would help us, even as we navigate these challenging times, to, to always look to you in faith, to be honest about our failures and to confess our sin and repent. And as we do so, Lord, we thank you that our forgiveness is not conditioned on our performance. It's conditioned on your death and resurrection on our behalf. Lord Jesus, we pray that we would be trees who are healthy and who bear good fruit for your glory. We pray these things in your name, our Savior. Amen.